Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 21? Second Kings chapter 21. And I'm going to read the first 18 verses with you there. Second Kings chapter 21. This is the word of God. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it with and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies." Because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. And since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. And so we read there, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Let's turn that now to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles chapter 34, and I want, I'm sorry, 33. And I want to read the entire chapter with you. 
2 Chronicles, chapter 33. And we continue to hear the word of God. Manasseh was 12 years old and he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son, in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the, law, to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. And therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he, re he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel, and we have read that a few moments ago. Also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sins and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. Amon was 22 years old, and he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. <laughs> For Amon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Amon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. 
But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Amon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Thus far, and in the context of all that we have read, I want to look particularly at verse 12 of this chapter that we've just read. Now when he, that's Manasseh then, now when Manasseh was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. If it is your practice to read through the Bible from beginning to end, it probably would be a good practice, but if that is your practice, you will have noticed that the narratives given in the book of Kings are often repeated in the book of Chronicles. We saw that this morning. We read two very similar accounts, one in Kings, the other from Chronicles, and and both of them about Manasseh, king of Judah, son of Hezekiah. And if you've ever wondered about the similarity and the differences between 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Perhaps it's helpful for you to know that the word chronicles itself in the Greek can be translated as an account of the things that were omitted, an account of the things that were omitted. And that's what we have here this morning. We read of the same narrative, both in two Kings and two Chronicles, but Chronicles gives us the things that were omitted in Second Kings. Follow with me. We read this morning of the history of Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah, and he reigned in Judah for 55 years, about 700 years before Jesus came into the world, and his reign was the longest of any of the kings of Judah. But unlike his father before him, Manasseh, in his early years as king, led Judah into a variety of idolatrous practices. That information is given us in both 2 Kings and in the parallel narrative of 2 Chronicles. In other words, in his younger years, he was not a godly man. Not only was he apostate spiritually, but he also killed many innocent people in Jerusalem, apparently including prophets who were sent by the Lord to to forecast disaster for Judah because of Manasseh's idolatry. And although we have no certainty, it is even possible that Isaiah was was among his victims. And the portrayal of Manasseh's reign in 2 Kings is unvaryingly negative. And Judah's ultimate destruction is repeatedly blamed on Manasseh. The version presented in 2 Chronicles, however, although still very critical of him, does not attach the blame specifically to him. But what we want to look at in particular this morning is the turning of this wicked man. And that's why we read both accounts. You see, the book of Kings gives us his terrible apostasy, but it does not give us Manasseh's repentance and return as Chronicles does. Manasseh's ungodliness is given us in Kings, and although Chronicles doesn't deny his ungodliness and his apostasy, what Chronicles also gives us, that which was omitted in the book of Kings, and that is the fact that in time, Manasseh returned to the Lord and was saved. Manasseh's complete history then is that although he was born of godly, pious parents, 
Although he was raised in a God-fearing home, although he was taught of and knew of the way and the will of the Lord, he refused to bow before the Lord. In hardness of heart, he turned his back upon the Lord's gracious promises, and because of his unfaithfulness, the Lord brought calamity upon him and upon his nation. He and his nation was taken in chains to Babylon. But, 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 but while he was there, he turned to the Lord. And when he did, the Lord restored him to his kingdom. And upon his return to Jerusalem, Manasseh put an end to the nation's idolatry. There as evidence of his repentance and his history then closes with, and he rested with his fathers, meaning he died in the Lord. My dear people of God gathered here with me this morning. What tremendous comfort already is given us here to parents. Parents who mourn over their prodigal sons and daughters. We read here of a young man raised in a pious, godly home. He was the son of Hezekiah who has given us in scriptures one of the three most perfect and faithful kings of Judah. But his son, his flesh and blood, strayed from the paths of righteousness and his father's heart would have been broken but, but, but the Lord did not leave this child alone in his time and in his way the Lord interrupted Manasseh on his road to destruction the Lord drew him unto himself and then Manasseh could finally say praise be to God I will not die but I will live and I will proclaim what the Lord has done the Lord has chastened me, Psalm 118. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And now our text of this morning speaks of these things. And I want to minister God's word to you this morning, using as my theme, a man ripe for repentance. A man ripe for repentance. We want to see a man who sinned against God. Then we want to see the man who experienced the judgments of God. And finally, we want to see a man who was led to repentance as consequence of the judgments of God. So a man who sinned against God, experienced the judgments of God, and was led to repentance through the judgment of God. People of God, Manasseh was a polytheist, meaning thereby that he worshipped many gods, and by his worship of false gods, he of course sinned against the one only true God. Oh, he worshipped, or at least he pretended to worship the one true God, but he also worshipped other gods. That was the source of his sin, for God insists that we worship him and him alone, the first commandment. Things haven't changed much, have they? Here we are about 30 centuries later, and men and women are still following this pattern of Manasseh. Still today, all of those outside of the church, and even many inside the church, worship other gods. Still today, there are so many, even among church members, who profess to worship the true God whom Christ revealed, but who still have their idols. Oh, they don't have idols of sticks and stones. No, their idols are much more subtle. Some worship money. Some are like those whom Paul said, their God is their belly. There are those who worship at the shrine of fashion or entertainment and pleasure. For some, their God is alcohol or drugs or illicit sexual gratification. But my dear people of God, when a person is ruled by any of those things, he's not a biblical theist, but he is a polytheist as Manasseh was. 
He may profess to worship the one true God, but he also has other gods. And his life is ruled not by the Lord, but by those other gods. And as Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. And so we need to understand that although the idols of today may be different from the, from the idols of Manasseh, they are no less offensive to God. Modern idols are surely a, a, a stench in the nostrils of God and an abomination in his sight as were the Molochs or Baal gods worshipped in Old Testament times. So Manasseh sinned against God and he did so for over a period of many years. Perhaps he thought he could sin against God and get away with it. He was raised in a godly home and so he would have known better. But perhaps he thought he could flaunt God's commandments without paying the price. But it is forever true that one will reap just what he sows. God always brings the sinner to judgment. And my dear precious people of God, that is still true today. God will deal with your sin. And when God fails to bring judgment to bear immediately upon uh, sin in our lives... It is only because he is long-suffering and patient, wanting that all men should come to repentance. But although he is long-suffering, his patience is not without limits. And in the case of Manasseh, the long-suffering of God came to an end one day. In the case of Manasseh, God finally withdrew his protective care. Manasseh had forgotten that his nation could exist only as long as God's protective arms were stretched about it. And in his sin, we may be assured that this powerful man was also a very proud man. And perhaps, perhaps his pride blinded him to the fact that he could sit upon the throne in Judah only as long as God upheld him. But he learned those facts through bitter experience when God withdrew his providential care. You know the story. We read it this morning. God permitted the armies to sweep down upon him and Manasseh and many of his people were led, led away into captivity. And my dear people, God, we need to understand this. For what God does here is not consistent with what most people, even many Christian people, think of him. God actually intentionally brings great hardship upon his own people and their king. God actually empowers the unbelieving world to conquer the church. Imagine that with me for a moment. That seems, that's, <clears throat> seems inconceivable to us. God is a God of love, is he not? Of course he is. The Bible is replete with that, in, replete with that information. But we need to understand that sometimes... Discipline is the most loving thing that can be done for a person. When parents love their children, they don't hesitate to discipline them. A church that truly loves her sheep exercises discipline when members stray. And because God loves his people, he disciplines them collectively as a church, but also individually as people. And that's what we see here. In love... God gives his chosen nation. In love, God gives his own people 
along with their king into the hands of the hated pagan Assyrians and what indignities were heaped upon Manasseh and his people that are not detailed in this record but it was common practice to place a ring through the nose or the lips of the prisoners and to lead them about as if they were animals. The captives could expect only inhumanity and brutality but paramount for us to understand here is that God used Hear me well. God used a foreign nation. God used a pagan nation. God used an ungodly nation to bring his judgment to bear upon Manasseh and the church. My dear people of God, we need to be careful that we don't miss the point here. If we were to ask at this point, why? Did God bring this terrible judgment into the life of Manasseh? If you were to answer with, with, with well, well to, pursue, to punish Manasseh for his sin, you would be right, but only partially so. God did indeed take Manasseh to task for his sin and his sinful life, but God had a far greater purpose in visiting Manasseh with captivity and torture. You see, you see it was the purpose of God to make Manasseh Repent. God had called Manasseh and his people to repentance over and over and over and over again, but they would not hear, they would not listen, and now God brought a frightening experience into their lives in order to bring them back unto himself. You see, God did not abandon his people. Oh no, they failed miserably in their required obedience. Manasseh especially had, had very pious parents, but he had turned aside from their wisdom. I'm sure they would have warned him many times, but he had turned aside from their wisdom. And Manasseh and his nation, they had the law and the prophets. And God had repeatedly sent prophets to warn them, but, but they stopped up their ears. And after, after they repeatedly failed to listen to God speaking through the voice of parents and prophets, God now spoke to them through calamity. Being overrun and taken captive by the enemy was simply another means of God's speaking to them. It was another way of God calling them to repentance. God's terrible judgment upon Manasseh did not mean that God was through with him or that God had cut him off or that God would leave him in eternal punishment. Oh, no. It meant precisely the opposite. God loved Manasseh. God loved Manasseh enough to punish him and thereby through that punishment to drive him to repentance for sin. People of God, remember with me now that Manasseh he was a member of the Old Testament church. And despite all of his sin, he was a member of the visible institutional church. But more than that, precisely because God worked this terrible judgment upon Manasseh, because of God's treatment of him and because of the testimony we have of him uh, concerning him after the captivity, I believe it's safe to conclude that Manasseh was a part of the body of true believers, which is known only to God. In other words, precisely because of the judgment of God, we may believe that he was numbered among the saints of God from all eternity. God had Manasseh's name engraved on the palm of his hand, and therefore the Lord would not, the Lord could not let him go. Had it not been so, 
God might have well allowed him to go on in his sin until there was nothing left but eternal condemnation and punishment. But, 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 God loved him enough to call him back out of his sin. So what are we to learn from all of this? It's an interesting story, but what would be the reason that the Holy Spirit included this narrative in Scripture? Well, a number of lessons can be found for us here. First of all, we learn that it is God and not man who is the author of repentance. You know, oftentimes after a bad experience, we will hear someone say, boy, I sure learned my lesson. How much better to say, boy, God sure taught me a lesson here. Repentance is impossible apart from the working of God. Without the Spirit of God, repentance is impossible. Saul of Tarsus was not seeking Christ on the Damascus road. No, Christ was seeking Saul. If God is the author and the finisher of our faith, then he must also be the author of our repentance when we sin. Therefore, we need to thank God whenever there is within us a desire to repent of our sin. We need to remember to give him all the glory when we are sorry for our sin, for it is his working in us. That first of all. Second, we learn that God demands repentance for sin. God loved Manasseh. God did not stop loving him for just even a moment. God chastised Manasseh precisely because he loved him. If there had been any other way, God would not have brought this terrible judgment upon him. But there was no other way. Manasseh had sinned. Manasseh must repent or be eternally lost. And God had determined Manasseh to be saved. He had determined that already in eternity, before the world's foundations were even laid. And therefore, God worked judgment upon Manasseh. And so when we sin, therefore we also must repent. Third, because sin must be followed by repentance, God leads his children to repent. And sometimes this leading is gentle and persuasive, as when the Holy Spirit works or speaks softly within the human heart. But sometimes this leading can be harsh and bitter, When we refuse to be led by gentler methods, then God adopts methods which are harsh. And my dear precious saints of God, if you have come to learn that biblical principle, then you have also learned to pray every day. Oh Lord, grant to me the necessary grace to follow your your leading, lest it should be necessary to crush me in order to make me after thy will. God does not always lead men into captivity and slavery. Sometimes he uses other painful methods, but whatever the method, God will lead his children to repentance. People of God, the the entire episode from the life of Manasseh stands as a solemn warning to every child of God. If you are a child of God, God loves you. That's certain. If you are a child of God, he will not let you go. That too is certain and encouraging. But, but, but at the same time, if you are a child of God, because you are a child of God, 
you must know that God may find it necessary to bring harsh judgments into your life if you will persist in sinning against his will, if you will persist in kicking against the thorns, and if you will learn your lesson in no other way, then God will use whatever means necessary to bring you to your knees in repentance, even if it means causing disaster to fall upon your life. But there's still more here. Beyond these lessons, there's also a lesson concerning the nature of repentance. You see, when God works repentance, it is a true repentance. And using the example of Manasseh, we see it consists of three steps. First of all, we read, he sought the Lord. That's what we read in verse 12. Some translations, your translation that you use, say that when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord. And one of the sources I consulted defined the word implored as it is used here in this context as to plead with someone to do something. Precisely. Manasseh, upon his conversion, sought the Lord and he implored the Lord, or if you will, he begged God to do something. He begged God to forgive him his sin. Oh, how differently he acted from so many men and women, even Christian men and women today. What Manasseh did was what Manasseh did was the exact opposite of many men who having illness or tragedy or death in their homes. Manasseh experienced great tragedy and the first thing he sensed was a need for the Lord. And so we read, he went to God. How different from so many people. If I may use a little illustration here, a child, especially a young child, when he knows himself to be in trouble, He wants the comfort of his father's loving arms around him. In the safety of his father's embrace, the child knows that he is safe and whatever was troubling him will be made well by father. Dad will fix it. He knows that he believes that and the same is true for Christians. The Christian knows himself to be a child of God. He knows God to be his father in Jesus Christ. And when God's children know themselves to be in need of forgiveness, they fall on their knees. And although it is forever true that they can pray to God at home or wherever they are and God will answer, but even more so, the child of God wants to be in the house of the Lord, for he knows that that's the place of God's own presence. In such times, when God by his spirit has worked in us a contrite heart, when God convicts us of our sin and moves us to repentance, that is precisely the time that we should come to the house of God more fervently and more often. Oh, what a blessed experience it is for us when in brokenness of heart we can receive comfort from the word of God in particular, the preached word of God. My dear people of God, this morning when I climbed into your pulpit, I welcomed you. And one of the things that I said was, welcome to the house of God where sins are forgiven. And I will share with you that one of the churches where I preach regularly asked me not to say that anymore because to them it's smacked of Roman Catholicism. The church doesn't save us. Well, in a real sense, it does. Think of your own confession of faith, Lord's Day 31. We're taught there that it's primarily 
through the preaching of the word of God that heaven's gates are opened wide. So now I say welcome to the house of God where sins are forgiven through a proper response to the preaching of the word of God that would clarify it. But it is how you, how you respond to the word of God. When we respond in faith and, and repentance, then God's gates of heaven are open wide to receive you. When we turn to Christ and embrace him, then God opens those gates and receives you. Well, then knowing that, knowing that <clears throat> when we know ourselves burdened with sin, then in those times we are so vulnerable and more in need than at any other time in our lives. And when in such great times of need, when we then remove ourselves, when we then absent ourselves from the service of the worship service in the house of God, then we remove ourselves from the very presence of God. Think about that and remember it the next time you make a conscious decision to remove yourself from a worship service. Finally, Manasseh understood. And finally, Manasseh sought the Lord. When calamity struck, we read, he implored the Lord, as, as, or as some other translation says, perhaps, perhaps even a better translation, he sought the Lord. And my dear people of God, we can certainly pray to God at home, but he has promised us to grace us with his presence when under the discipline of his word on Sunday worship. That's where we need to seek him. Secondly, according to the text, Manasseh humbled himself greatly. And that too is a very different procedure than many follow. How few there are who, like the publican of old, dared not to lift his eyes into heaven, but beating upon his breast and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How hard it is for us to, for, to, to humble ourselves before the Lord and to make a confession of our sin. The common approach to sin is for the Christian to mumble the words and forgive us our sins. Amen. I've heard many men and women pray seemingly endless prayers without a single reference to sin or a confession or repentance. And if they do, then it is almost as an afterthought quickly tacked onto the end of the prayer with the words, forgive us our sins. Amen. People of God, that's not repentance at all. That's not repentance at all. It seems to say that the forgiveness of sin is a little thing lightly to be asked and lightly to be accomplished. But the forgiveness of sins is not a little thing to God. It cost him his only begotten son. And so then when Manasseh repented, when he sought the Lord, he humbled himself before God. And then finally we read, he prayed. He prayed. He sought the Lord, he humbled himself, and he prayed. The evidence of true repentance then is to seek God, to humble ourselves through the medium of prayer. And this speaks of the eternal consequence of prayer. My dear precious saints, God, capture this with me. The concept is urgent. Many think only of the temporal consequences of prayer. Many people are, people, people are ill, for instance, and they pray for health. They have heartaches, they pray for release. They lose their job, they pray for employment. They fear death, they pray for life. And all of that is good and, 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 and permissible, of course, required. But the great power in prayer is not in what it accomplishes in time, but that which it accomplishes for eternity. The great power in prayer lies in what is accomplished when a soul is forgiven and reconciled to God. 
But now, people of God, capture also with me the results of Manasseh's repentance. First of all, God heard and received him. When Manasseh cried out to God, God heard and answered. It has been God who had brought these judgments upon him so that he would call upon the name of the Lord. And when he did, God was waiting for him. Oh, it's Elvis. While I sat in my study working on this, it was hard for me not to think in this context of the prodigal son. Did we not see the father there with his arms wide open, waiting to receive his straying son? So too here. Second, the Lord heard his cry and removed his burden. That is to say, Manasseh was released from his captivity and restored to his kingdom. When the purposes of God were accomplished, there was no longer any reason to continue the affliction. The purpose of the captivity was to make Manasseh ripe for repentance. And so when the captivity caused Manasseh to repent and the purposes of God were accomplished, God removed the affliction. But, but, but the best was yet to come. We read, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. In other words, he ceased to be a polytheist. Manasseh now ceased to worship false gods. Manasseh now finally gave God his proper and unique place of honor and glory. The false gods were abandoned and the one true God of all glory was embraced. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God and he now gave to God his proper place of sovereign glory and majesty. People of at this point, we will be inclined to end this story with, and they all lived happily ever after. Manasseh was now a proper servant of God, and in turn, the Lord had restored Manasseh to the throne of Judah. And that's how all good stories are supposed to end. They all lived happily ever after. Unfortunately, this is not the end of the story. Oh, Manasseh, he did live happily ever after in glory. As far as the record indicates, Manasseh remained true to God for as long as he lived, and God permitted Manasseh to remain upon the throne of of Judah for the rest of his life. One might might say it appears that they all did live happily ever after. And if the story ended with the death of Manasseh, that would be a correct conclusion. But the story does not end with his death. Oh, no. After the death of Manasseh, his son Ammon ascended the throne of Judah. But his record starts off the same as his father of old. We read, he sinned as his father had done before him. But with this difference, the record states that he did not humble himself and repent of his sin as his father had, but that he sinned more and more. He reigned in Judah only two years, serving false gods and idols until he was killed in a conspiracy against him. Here then is the end of the story and what a sobering end it is. It holds at least at last a lesson for those who will learn it and it is this. God will surely forgive the sins of the truly penitent but at the same time the consequence of sin are never fully wiped out. And one of the saddest facts concerning sin is that the consequences are often found in the lives of the sinner's children. That's what we see here. Long after Manasseh had died and gone to glory, the consequence of his sin lived on in the life of his son. 
What a heart-searching lesson for parents. You may sin. And if by the grace of God you are led to repentance, you will be forgiven. But the consequence of your sin may well live on in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, and perhaps even your great-grandchildren. And that's a truth which I believe is neither preached upon nor emphasized enough. Though sins may be and are forgiven, the consequences live on. My dear precious people of God, what a heart-searching lesson for us as parents. When our children stray and wander from the Lord, could it be that they have learned that behavior from our example? Could it be that in the time when our children were most vulnerable, when our, <coughs> our children were in their formative years, could it be that we ourselves were careless in our commitment to God and that we were insufficiently cognizant of the consequences that our conduct might have upon the sons and daughters that follow us? When our children stray and abandon the church, could it be because of our own lukewarmness towards the church and the kingdom when our children were young? Could it be that our children abandoned the church because of our constant criticism of her? Our lack of love for her? Perhaps, how, parents, how, how have you lived before God during the time that your children looked to you as role models spiritually? Could they see in you that for you, God was the only God? Oh, you may have sent him to catechism, to church, to Christian school, and all the rest. But did your children see in you concerning your own relationship to Christ? Could they see, did they see in you that Christ was precious to you? Did your children see Christ in the way that you related to your wife, your husband, or in the raising of your children? Did they see in you the love of and for Christ? And when you disciplined them, did they understand that you did so because you wanted to rescue their very eternal souls? I once visited with a colleague, a minister's friend, and I, 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 his wife, one of the small children and his wife, ran past me doing 60 miles an hour. She was trying to catch him, and finally she caught him, and I heard her discipline him, and he hollered, why are you spanking me? And she said, because if I don't, God will. That's exactly the point. Exactly the point. I never forgot that. My dear precious people of God, how many parents have not cried themselves to sleep on so many occasions wishing they could have another chance at raising their children. And if you, have, if you have failed your children spiritually, and if you have sincerely repented of that, then by the grace of God, I may assure you that by the grace of God, you are forgiven in your failure towards them. But know also that the consequence of your sin may live on in them, perhaps to the third and fourth generation. Something to think about, isn't it? My dear parents, I think it's fair and honest to say that for many pastors, myself included, the greatest disappointment, the greatest burden and disappointment of the ministry is to see parents who assume that their children will turn out okay without hard work, without humility, without fervent, ardent, unceasing prayer on the part of mom and dad. 
How often do we not see parents closing their eyes to the sins of their children, confidently claiming it's only a phase? Parents and also grandparents, we need to lead by example. We need to know that raising up of children in the fear of the Lord requires work, hard work, very hard work. And above all, we need to be much on our knees, pounding on heaven's door, imploring with God, seeking God, asking God, seeking God's forgiveness on the sins of the past, but also to plead with God that the consequence of our sin would not live on in the lives of our children, not only in time, but for all eternity but the opposite is also true when we as parents honor our covenant obligations toward our children then we may trust God to also honor his covenant promise to us and to our children we have seen that truth confirmed again this morning in our text may God use the preached word again this morning to bring us to our knees in repentance. And may we then feel his everlasting arms embracing us as he whispers in our souls, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven you. May that be the blessed experience of each of us and our children.